I used to work at one of Canada's biggest newspapers. Now, this was just a, a summer contract for young journalists in Toronto. There were about 16 of us. And by September, we were all wondering the same thing. Who was going to get a job at the paper after this? This came up for me in August. There was a, a job posting for a contract extension in my department. So one of the uh, copy editors, who's a, a middle-aged guy, very funny, very sarcastic, he'd been at the paper a while, he asked me whether or not I was going to apply for this job. And I told him I wasn't. So he asked me what my plans for September were, and I told him I was going to move to Arequipa, a city in the Peruvian Andes. My girlfriend was going to teach English. I'd work as a freelance writer. I'd finish my book, and we'd just escape the Canadian winter. And I'll never forget this guy's response. He stares at me for a second, pauses, and then says, Oh, fuck you. The older you get, the harder it is to just pack up your life and go. You find someone you love, you have kids, there's pets, car payments, mortgages, even just little things. Maybe a new phone number, maybe a, a subletter, maybe you leave your apartment. Then what do you do with all your stuff? You have to call the electric company, the internet company, make sure your taxes are in order, debt payments. It's a lot to deal with. But that impulse, that impulse to dig down into a place, to make roots, live stably, that is at odds with our other innate human desire to discover new places. We are explorers. We crave new experiences. Most of us fill that desire with vacations, at least a week or two each year to explore a new place. But not everyone. My name is Michael Freeman, and I'm the associate editor at Outpost Travel Media. This is How to Make Money Traveling. In this podcast, we're going to talk with people who've made travel a necessary part of their professional lives. To be on this podcast, you've got to check three boxes. One, you're working a job you actually like. Two, you're doing it anywhere in the world. And three, you're getting paid to do it. And I will confess right now, we will break some of these rules. But there's a common theme on the show. These people are making money while traveling. They're not bound to a desk at home. They don't just travel once or twice a year. Traveling is who they are. Take, for example, our first guest, Ryan Estrada. Ryan lives in Busan, the second biggest city in South Korea. I met him when I was actually living there myself a few years ago. I'd call Ryan a webcomic artist, but honestly, that would be selling him short. He's a podcaster, storyteller, blogger. He's always working on something big and different. His nine-episode podcast, Big Data, is this sprawling audio drama featuring comedians like Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords and Paul F. Tompkins. His webcomic, Broken Telephone, is more than... 200 pages of this unfolding crime that shifts perspectives, narrators, even illustrators to tell its story. And before all those, he penned a quick little comic strip called Learn to Read Korean in 15 Minutes. This went so viral that when I was studying Korean myself in my bachelor apartment in Halifax, before I even moved there and met Ryan, I stumbled across it. And I found it extremely helpful. Here's how Ryan describes himself on his website. My name is Ryan Estrada. I was a gator wrangler in the United States, an ambassador to Australia, an undocumented animator in Canada, a Bollywood star in India, a ghostbuster in South Korea, a Cocoa War reporter in Peru. I explored Kim Jong-il's secret tunnels to North Korea, slept on a bench 
in a Japanese typhoon, dug toilets for Thai tsunami victims, wandered illegally into Burma, made comics on top of ancient ruins in Cambodia, performed a made-up musical in Malaysia, sang on a stage in Singapore, played the guitar in Laos, hunted hyena skulls in Kenya, climbed Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, watched whales in Ecuador, made adventure videos in Colombia, lived on a Costa Rican beach in a Panamanian volcano, and only one of those is a lie. I'll talk with Ryan after just a quick message. Stick around. This podcast is brought to you by Outpost's new travel web series, Tan Your Mind to Thailand. Last summer, we put out a national call for two unknown travel hosts to send around the country, and we found them. We wound up sending Jess, a singer from Montreal, and Abra, a nutritionist from northern BC, all across Thailand to get a real feel of the country. They trekked across northern jungles around Chiang Mai. They snorkeled off the southern beaches of Koh Tao Island. They met a man who spent his whole life working with remote hill tribes near the Burmese border. They toured an ancient temple with a Buddhist monk. There's just so much. You've got to watch the show and see it for yourself. So check it out at www.tanyourmind.com. Follow Outpost Magazine on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to catch all the latest updates. Thanks to our partners in Adventure for helping to make this show possible. That's Cathay Pacific Airways, Osprey Packs, Chaco Footwear, and the Tourism Authority of Thailand. One of the things that I've always admired about you, and it's like, it's, I think it's the most evident in that bio, is that you seem to be able to find interesting stories anywhere. Like, you know, I'll go traveling sometimes. I'll be like walking around a city, going to bakeries, restaurants, whatever. And I don't like, I don't come away with an interesting story, I don't think. But you sort of do. And uh, I'm curious if that's something that you're particularly good at. Like, are you good at finding these sorts of stories where other people don't or are you the kind of guy who's actively going out and making those stories happen well it's just that i'm looking for it like that i've lived a life where stories are my currency uh when i have an experience i i don't care if the experience is amazing and life-changing or if it's horrible and uh destroying like it it i just want something to come out of it that's interesting enough that i could tell a story about it whether it's a comic or a podcast or anything that I'm making. So I, I don't necessarily, you know, it's not like I go out like a reality TV producer looking to shape things and make things happen. But I like to throw myself into situations that I'm not ready for, or uh, that are out of my comfort zone, just so that something happens that I can tell a story about. Yeah. How, how often do you go out thinking you're going to find a story? Uh, and then not? Um. I think I pretty much always get into trouble everywhere I go, uh, which is, makes it a lot of fun for my wife when she's traveling with me and she gets to experience those stories as well. Um, you know, that like uh, th there have been times where like I thought I was having a boring trip. Like the, the story about um, in that bio, it said I wandered illegally into Burma. Uh, you know, I didn't know at the time that I was there illegally. I, there was some paperwork confusion and I thought I had stamped into the country when I was actually stamped out and uh, I just walked around really bored and then finally I found out that I was in there illegally and I could have been arrested and thrown in a horrifying prison conditions and I'm like I think I got my story I'm ready to go hmm. I feel like if most people did that though it wouldn't be a story like if that happened to me I'd just be like oh there was like some paperwork confusion uh, hmm. like I didn't get my stamp and then I just had to come back like I don't think in terms of these 
radical hypotheticals that I, I've found, particularly in your comics, you do explore. That's the thing that I find interesting is you like you take the concept and you go with it. Yeah, I like to just uh, I look at things as stories, no matter where I go, whether it's whether I'm just sitting on the bus going to work or if I'm going on an adventure, I always look for the stories and look to appreciate the weird things that happen to me. Yeah, it definitely seems like you're on a new project fairly frequently. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to segue that into like for exposure, for example. Um, could you just sum, sum up that really quickly? Well, uh, yeah, for exposure text is just this uh, weird Twitter account that I started because, it, you know, in the process of being an artist, you see a lot of ads where people just expect artists to work for free or in like, which, which is fun, you know, like uh, both you and I have been in community uh, theater productions where everyone works for free. And, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing passion projects and things you care about with people that you care about, like, and not worrying about money. But like, there's so much like uh people just expect so much for nothing from strangers and they're so demanding about it uh it, it just is just fascinated me the more i looked into it like i you know everyone kind of gets a bit of it but like once you start digging and looking for it it's just amazing how much people expect uh and how rude they are about it. So I started, like, I found a bunch of quotes that were funny, and I started a Twitter account. I thought I'd play around with it for a week, and it just got, it just, it just struck a chord with a lot of uh, people. So I just take the worst quotes from uh, people disrespecting artists and share them on this Twitter account. And uh, it's kind of become a, a thing that people kind of uses therapy, like, so they don't murder a client, they just yell at for exposure text uh, quotes. They, they know that the person who wrote it will never read it, but it just kind of is this tool that artists use to not murder people. And uh, and, and I, I love it. When you started that, there was no monetization on that whatsoever, right? That was just a mm -hmm. funny thing you were just doing? Mm-hmm. And how long has it been? I, I, now you're starting the Patreon. Is that the first hint of a dollar sign that you're seeing attached to that particular project yeah i've been working on it for four years it's just a, a fun thing i do and it, and it's you know it really is just a, a a kind of way to decompress every morning and uh something fun to do but the reason i started to monetize it is just because um you know all of the projects i do as you said i'm bouncing between all these giant projects of huge comics with like 30 different artists or uh you know radio dramas with like 100 different uh, performers and they take years and years to uh, develop and get done and it, it's really hard to do any kind of regular funding like like I couldn't do a Patreon for any of those projects because it'll be like two years before I have anything to show anyone uh, but I realized that that's kind of something that I do consistently and that people enjoy and that I could make into a fun little community so that's why I, I've kind of turned to fundraising for that to uh, subsidize the longer weirder things that i do um which it's a strange career when i can call for exposure text one of the least weird things that i do how often when you start these projects uh do you think of how you could monetize them uh i start think i you know I, that's not usually not the thing i think of first just because every single project i start i think is going to be a simple thing i'll do in a week uh, just for fun before I start the next big project for money. 
And uh, so I, and then I get super into it and it expands. Like uh, I've mentioned before, big data was going to be a thing I did with my friends in a weekend. And that lasted two years. Uh, Broken telephone was going to be a short comic. I was going to illustrate myself and it got longer and longer until it became like a 300 page graphic novel with 36 artists. And uh, so it get, I usually get a ways into it where I've gone nuts and made giant plans when I'm like, oh, how am I going to pay for all of this? And I kind of have to think about it. But, it, you know, I kind of build that thinking into it about how am I going to try and monetize it. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, some projects end up, you know, monetarily successful. Some end up uh, expensive hobbies. But, uh, you know, it's all just uh, trial and error. So how do you monetize some of those big projects like Big Data or or Broken Telephone, uh, the sort of big sprawling projects? The personal projects I've done so far, I've had the most success with uh, Kickstarter. Uh, the thing about monetizing creative projects, especially uh, comics or things like that, that in my experience, has been that no two artists I know that are successful at it have been successful the same way. Um, and it they're... You know, the monetization depends entirely on what you're doing and how you're doing it and the audience. Uh, like, um, you know, it, a lot of people that have comics would sell merchandise, which doesn't work as well for my comics because, like I said, I bounce back and forth and do so many different things that, like, there aren't enough characters that people have come, you know, attached to that recur. People aren't going to be buying a Ryan Estrada plush doll or Hyun yeah. Suk doll or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, like... You know, there's characters in Broken Telephone, but then, you know, they don't necessarily appear in other, you know, some of them cross over. But, uh, you know, it, it's just not mine is not the type of work that, you know, lends itself to selling T-shirts and plush dolls. Uh, there's advertising. But, you know, like I said, I everything I do is different. So you, you can't really build, uh, you know, you advertise on one thing and then you move on to another. So what I've found is just using Kickstarter for a project. Um the the challenge is for me when I do a Kickstarter like that, I want to have as much work done as possible before I show it to people and ask for money. So it's usually about two years of work into it before I even start looking for funding. And I you know, I never know if it's gonna be successful or not. It I've been very lucky so far that they have been. Um, you know, like with uh big data, I uh paid all the actors out of my own pocket. We, we, uh, sorry, we should we should clarify. Big data is your uh, podcast story about stealing the internet, something like that. Uh, Am I sort of on it? Yeah, yeah. I did a uh, a nine episode miniseries. It's an audio drama, uh, basically like a TV show that you listen to, and it's about uh, it's comedy crime stories about stealing in the internet. And it has a bunch of uh, local actors here in Busan and celebrity guest stars like Jermaine Clement and Felicia Day, Paul F. Tompkins, Sam Levine. Um, th that was the project that I decided to try and do in uh, a weekend, and it took two years. Uh, so what I did is I paid the 74 or so actors out of my own pocket for a couple of years and then just hoped that when I went to Kickstarter, I'd make the money back. Um, and luckily I did. I made back all of the money I spent. Uh, and then the only problem was I enjoyed it so much that I just kept spending money after it finished. So what's like, what do you get out of it if you're not, if you're spending two years on something and you break even by a little? Yeah, I, um, 
I guess my vice is working with interesting artists. Like other people, they smoke or they drink, uh, they gamble. I don't do any of that. I just, uh, I just contact actors I like and uh, illustrators I like and cartoonists I like and collaborate on weird projects with them. Uh, I did spend 10 years as a full-time cartoonist and made my full-time living that way. Um, and I actually made more money doing that than I, you know, made when I had a full-time teaching job. Uh, and it, it was great. The problem was that I was doing things that I didn't necessarily enjoy. I had a business called Cartoon Commune where I did uh, uh, custom comics. And it would be like, you know, my boyfriend's birthday is coming up. Draw him as Batman or our corporation is going to a trade show. Please draw our CEOs as rock stars uh, with the best product. Or like uh, we have a new app. We make a comic explaining how it works. And uh, and I did a lot of cool projects in there. I worked for like uh, U.S. senators and rock stars and uh, really cool stuff. But I it kind of slowly made me hate making comics and doing creative things, especially since like you know, there's nothing wrong with having a day job that you don't necessarily enjoy to kind of subsidize your creative endeavors. But the, the difference is like if you're working at a coffee shop, you can be like, I can't wait until I can get home to make comics. But when your day job is drawing really crappy comics, you can't be like, oh, I can't wait till I'm done drawing this crappy comic. And then I'm going to sit at the same desk and draw a different comic. So it kind of like some of the the really boring ones and really like annoying customers just kind of drove me crazy and made me hate it. So that's why I kind of, I switched to this weird phantom zone where I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I teach a few hours a day to subsidize everything. And then just for the last, I guess, five years now, I've just been going on wild goose, goose chases and doing really weird, massive projects. And, uh, trying to get back into where I was, where I'm making a full-time living off of creative work, uh, but doing things that I want to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm still working on it. I'm still, you know, it's, it, it, it's interesting when you like have this kind of project ADD where you spend years and years to finally figure out how to make a living at something. And then you're like, okay, but I'm bored with it now. So then you do something else and you have to figure out how to make a living at that. So that's the the back and forth that I'm constantly doing. So that five years ago thing, I mean, that kind of coincides. How long have you been living in, in Korea? Uh, well, this time, I think it's been about five, six years. I first came in 2002, but after that, I moved to a new country every year. And now I've, I've kind of, we got married, my wife and I got married and we settled uh, here, I think about five, six years ago. So that kind of coincides with you wanting to settle down in a day job so you can be creative in the evening. Do you think that kind of static lifestyle is necessary for the kind of lifestyle career balance you just described? I don't, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, the, the way I make my living is all on the internet. Um, and even when I was doing the commissions, it was all on the internet. You know, no one that reads my work or buys my work necessarily has to know, uh, where I am. Um, so it's just kind of, uh, you know, I could be anywhere doing it. Uh, and the, you know, when I traveled, it was, it actually made it easier to, you know, live off of, you know, creative, uh, 
projects when I was traveling because a, a lot of people assumed when I was telling them, oh, I'm in this country this year, this country here, and I'm going to stop in this country. They'd assume I was just fabulously independently wealthy that I could travel the world. But really, uh, a lot of the times when I wasn't making as much money, uh, I was going to these countries because I could live. Like I couldn't have lived in America. But I was going and, you know, living on beaches and living on the sides of volcanoes and spending, you know, living for like 100, 200 bucks a month and uh, living like a king on the meager earnings of a cartoonist. What made you stop all that? Uh, I, I, I guess I stopped traveling just because I kind of fell in love with uh, Busan, just the community I have here. It's just, um, you know, I, I definitely do want to travel again, but just as I traveled, it, you know, as you get older, they say like as you get older, it gets harder to find a new community and build new friendships and things like that. And uh, and it, I found myself every time I went somewhere trying to build a community of artists and uh, every time I finally did it, you know, kind of moving on and um, which it is it was still great, like having all these different lives and all these different experiences. But after a while, uh, it just got more difficult. And then once I came to Busan, I met just this amazing community of people uh, doing all different things and it keeps growing and people go and people come and start new projects. And I've just fallen in love with all the the art that happens here and uh, all the people that I get to work with, uh, whether it's in uh, the plays that are produced here or in my podcast projects or um, anything like it. And just uh, it it's a great place to live. Um, and uh, I'm just kind of staying here while I'm still enjoying it. And when I uh, feel that it's time to move on, maybe I, I'll uh, head elsewhere. But I just haven't gotten sick of it yet. What's it like being an American comic in the Korean comic scene? Because I know you're, you're reasonably involved in that, are you not? You're talking about... Uh, like web comics. Like, like are you not... Okay. I thought you were going to like, uh, like comic conventions and fairs and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Um, yep. is not most of that in Korean. So it's interesting being like one of the only and sometimes the only uh, foreigner in there selling work. And uh, I'd have like either comics that were translated into Korean or like I'd have a bookmark that had like subtitles so they could read along. And uh, it, it was it was a really interesting experience. But uh, I, I eventually got tired of all the traveling and I didn't want to invest in, in printing more books because it with the – the way the printing work, I have to print like 2,000 and I still have like eight boxes of each book that I printed before. Um, so it, it was an interesting experience. You know, it, it's always nice to look at all the different ways that you can monetize the work that you do and try and diversify so that you're not constantly going to one audience and uh, in your your hope to do it. So I, I did make a make some money there but uh a lot of the money went into traveling and lodging when i was going to the conventions and uh you know some conventions i'd, I'd make a lot of money but then the problem with having monthly conventions is that it's the same people every month so uh by the time you know you go there for an entire year pretty much the people that are going to buy your comic will have bought it how much do you sell the printed books for uh the books that I was selling were going for between like uh, equivalent to $2 and 
uh, I think like $4 was the most expensive one. Um, I did once at a convention here that had a, um, it was a, like a Western convention for the foreigners here. I had a pay what you want table. Um, I've done that a few times where people can just grab a book and pay whatever they want in a bucket. Um, and that's another thing, like I was saying, it, it, there's no one way to make money at something. Uh, because I, I wrote another blog post on Medium about that, how I realized that these two conventions were so different that it all depends on what value the audience places on the work you're you're showing. Whereas like um, if I had done a pay what you want table at like Busan Comic World where it's mostly young kids that are coming to get fan art and, you know, they see this strange thing that a foreigner is selling. They're not sure if they can understand it because some of it's in English. They're, they're going to pay like 100 won for it. Uh, because that's what its value is. And it's a curiosity. But then when I go to a convention with people that uh, are in, you know, geek communities uh, from the West and they they know about like pay what you want things, they know about like the humble bundle and, and all that. And also a lot of them uh, know my work. They've a lot of them have learned to read uh, Korean through my comic, learned to read Korean in 15 minutes. So to them, these things hold value and they use them and they they learn from them. So uh, they were very, very generous. And I, I ended up making like three times more than I would have if I'd sold them at uh, face value. So what you're so saying sort of is like there's no intrinsic value to what, yeah. to the things you're doing. It, it depends on the audience, right? It depends on what people yeah. are willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it depends on what value it has to them and what place it's going to have in their lives. Is it, you know, like a lot of times when you go to a convention, like you'll you'll buy something just because you're curious or you'll buy something because the person at the table looks sad because they haven't bought anything and you feel bad. There's many reasons you could buy something. And so, uh, you know, whether you're selling something at a convention, or you're selling something online, uh, it, it's something to think about. Like what, what does this thing I'm selling mean to the audience? How are they approaching it? Um, like on my website, if you buy eBooks of any of my work, it's all pay what you want. Uh, you know, pe- people can pay a dollar, they can pay $10, whatever they want. And, um, you know, it, and all, they could read all the same things online. So it's not like, you know, I'm paywalling it. It's just kind of, uh, you know, if this meant something to you, you can buy the ebook and save it on your phone. So, uh, yeah, that's something I think about when I'm trying to price work. How, how much a month do you make from those random little donations uh, and, and basically how, how much a month do you make from your comics in general? Uh, that varies so wildly depending on what I'm working on. Uh, you know, like these days, all the comics, uh, that I sell on my site, um, you know, they've been out a while or they've been part of Kickstarters that people have already pledged to. Uh, so I'll, I'll probably get these days just people selling eBooks like, uh, you know, 20, 30 bucks. Not that much, but like when they first came out and say I did a Kickstarter to make them happen, you know, it, it would bring in, you know, several thousand dollars uh, depending on the project. You know, often I'm working with other artists, so I'll have to share the what the Kickstarter brings in. Uh, but, you know, usually when I launch a, a project, if I do a, a crowdfunding or big sale for it, that's where the money will come at the beginning. And then the rest of it just kind of slowly kind of... Uh, trickles in as people want to as new people discover it um so that that's the 
interesting thing about the type of work that I do is I'll have uh, – and what makes it very difficult to do taxes is that like one month I'll do a Kickstarter and it will bring in like you know $30,000 and then the next month I'll make $8 on comics. And so it, it really – it's hard to say because I work on so many different types of things. I cannot imagine your taxes and I do not want to. <laughs> Yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. Um, when when you're uh, working with other artists, uh, like for like for Broken Telephone, for example, where you hired several other artists to illustrate chapters of a story that you wrote, uh, how much do you pay them? Uh, for Broken Telephone, I paid fifty dollars a page uh, for each artist, um, and yeah, that's that that's. I, I wish I could have paid a lot more, but uh, it just kind of was based on how much the Kickstarter brought in. Um, and yeah, that's... And is, it, is that's that, just, is that it, not a... I mean, I'm not a comic book artist. Is that not a particularly high rate? Uh, for, you know, for like an indie book, that that's what a lot of people pay. Uh, for You know, it when I did uh, commissioned work, uh, like I talked about that Cartoon Commune site, I charged... At the end, I charged $250 per page. But, uh, you know, the difference is that, like, you know, for that, I'm doing something that I didn't really want to do. So part of the money was for the work and part of the money was for just me getting the gumption to draw your boyfriend as Batman <laughs> and then have to deal with you be like, but it doesn't look like him. I'm like, well, because he's wearing a Batman mask. How many ways can I draw his chin? <laughs> I went on a tangent there. But anyway, um, yeah, so, you know. For me, you know, a, a creative project like that, you know, it, fifty dollars worth it. But then it just depends on how much the people working on it liked my script. I guess if it was worth it to them, but everyone seemed uh, happy to be working on it. Nice. Do you find certain types of comics um, sell better than others? Like when you're advertising, like the like you know, uh, getting arrested by the police in peru when you wander into a coca field like versus a quiet profile of a homeless man in south korea both of which you've written mm -hmm. uh do you find like one sells better than the other i think the comics that i do that uh that do the best are the ones that uh either i can i think it's just something that you can have an elevator pitch for that brings people in um like learn to read queen in 15 minutes uh has been my not that I've made a lot of money off of it. You know, people do buy ebooks and I have sold copies at shows, but mostly it just went viral on the internet with a version that I forgot to put my name on. But uh that was hugely successful just because the name in itself is an elevator pitch. People are like, you can't do that. And they read it and they're like, oh you can learn to read green in 15 minutes. Um and I think that's that's what you need is something that you can, you know, pitch to people easily um you know I, i've done the book uh for iron circus comics Porecraft wish you were here and when you tell people it, it you know it it's a travel guide that you can use for wherever you travel like you know instead of getting lonely planet soul you just get a travel book that will help you save money no matter where you're going uh people are interested in that um uh when i when i try and sell broken telephone it's or uh, broken telephone or uh, big data, it, they're a lot more complicated to to tell people what they are. I can do it, and uh, you know, I I can 
get people interested, but like it, it takes more time because they're very weird, kind of complicated stories. And those are kind of a slow burn because people will, uh, you know, you need someone to, you know, give it a chance and look at it. And they're like, oh, I like this. This is interesting. And they'll tell someone else and they'll tell someone else and it slowly grows. Whereas things like that kind of just, um, people are immediately interested in what they are and how you can do it. Right on. Uh, any parting words? This will be my last question. Um, any parting words for young young webcomic artists looking to break into the game uh, without simply directing them to the medium posts you have written about that very subject? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just start making work. Uh, don't sit there worrying about... Uh, you know, this magnum opus that you want to do that has to be perfect. Just start making things, whether they're good or whether they're garbage. Sit, you know, try and make garbage. Do like a 24-hour comic and just, okay, that's done. You learn something from it because the first thing you make is never going to be the most amazing thing you'll ever make. This has been a production of Outpost Travel Media. This show is produced and edited by Seth Earl and me, Michael Freeman. Our executive producers are Matt Robinson and Deborah Sanborn. Sound mixing assistance by David Spadavecchia. Our music is by Springtide. Thanks again to Ryan for chatting with me. If you want to see more of his work, go to www.ryanestrada.com or you can find links to his art and projects at outpostmagazine.com podcast. I do suggest you check this out. Honestly, listening to a comic artist talk about art doesn't really do the art justice. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else. This is the first season of How to Make Money Traveling, and I would love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review while you're there. Let me know what you think. Thanks, and see you next time.